All right, guys, as you could tell from last week, this is definitely uh, the very emotional part of the book, the hardest part for me to get through. It's not going to be much easier this week. Uh, as you can see with the stories that we're going to cover, there's ups and there's downs. And uh, that's the way it's probably going to be from here on out. Uh, that's just that's part of it. It's part of life. That's the way everybody's life is. There's ups, there's downs. Uh, never let yourself get too high. Never self, let yourself get too low. So uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking. We're going to pick up with three more chapters this week. Chapter 13. Life Takes Unexpected Turns Reviewing one's life is never fun. Up to this point in my life story, I had struggled financially and moved from one job to the next, learned to live on my own, and entangled myself in failed relationships. Deep down, I knew that I would never have a successful relationship until I accepted that Gina and I were never going to work out. This would be difficult. My self-esteem was bruised and I was constantly battling my depression. And no one knew because I kept all of that behind closed doors, locked up deep within myself. All my friends thought I was doing great and that was the way that I wanted them to see me. In February of 2005, I met a wonderful woman named Jennifer. She had two great sons and lived in a mobile home on a three-acre piece of land near Fort Knox, Kentucky. This was about a 40-minute drive from my mobile home. After dating for a few months, we decided that I would move into her home. I found someone that was willing to move into my mobile home and take over the payments, cleared it with the owner, and now the next phase of my life was about to start. Honestly, I'm not really sure how I truly felt about Jennifer. I definitely cared for her, but I'm not sure that I was in love with her, and for good reason. I was gun-shy. I'd been burned by Gina four times, and had another woman lie to me about her entire life. To say I was cautious about my feelings now would be an understatement. At this time, I was in weekly counseling, and I was handling stress and anger better than I had in my entire life. I was calm virtually all the time. This not only was great at home, but this calm benefited me with my problem-solving skills. My new store had been ranked in the 1500s when I took over, and I had propelled it into the top 50 in the company. The only issue with this job was the same one that had plagued me several times before, and that was the schedule. I was working six days a week, putting in 70 hours each week. Those hours started to take their toll on my relationship with Jennifer. It's hard to nourish a healthy relationship when you don't spend much time with each other. I had a stroke of luck when a regional manager position came open with a cash advance company that will remain nameless. The hours were great and the pay was more than I was making. I could not have asked for anything more at this time. This also gave me the opportunity to try something that I had always wanted to try, stand-up comedy. In June of 2005, I made my debut at an open mic at Comedy Caravan in Louisville, Kentucky. This experience went very well and I was bitten by the performing bug for the first time in my life. I absolutely loved being in front of a crowd. My comedy career would be a significant part of my life for a time, but I don't want to spend much time focusing on that career. I did it full-time for about two years, and part-time for another ten years. It was exhausting being a road comic, not to mention the pay sucked for a beginning comic, and there were no benefits. The only reason I'm including my comedy career in the book at all is because it is important for a few future stories. 
one of which has a paranormal connection. And yes, I do still have a few paranormal stories to share a little bit later. My new job at the Cash Advance location was going great. But, this is me, and if you've learned anything thus far, you know something had to go wrong. My boss was a complete jerk. Typically, I do not use the word hate when referring to how I feel about a person. But, I was as close to that word as I could be when it came to this man. I will not name him because I refuse to give him any bit of credibility. He was a dictator with no feelings of any kind. Fast forward to the end of November 2005. One of our locations in the Indianapolis area had been held up at gunpoint. The manager had a gun held to her head. The robbers got away with almost $5,000 in cash. The manager stayed in her location, helping law enforcement until almost midnight, six hours after she was supposed to have gone home. Her description and cooperation with the police led to the capture of the thieves. She then had to go down and identify the men. All of the money was retrieved thanks to this woman's efforts. She had approximately nine hours of overtime due to those efforts that night. I was instructed by my boss to let this manager know that he would be furloughing for 18 hours the following week to make up for the overtime she was getting ready to receive. She pointed out that this week ended the pay period, so this meant her furlough week would be on a completely different pay period. That meant her taxes on this check would be more than usual, so she would probably lose money in the long run. I explained this to my boss and pleaded on her behalf that she should be able to keep the overtime because she had saved the company $5,000 and she was struggling financially. On top of that, she was also one of our best managers. My boss told me not to side with the employees and to give her her ultimatum. She would take the time off as instructed or she would be fired. I told him to go fuck himself and threw my keys at him, thus starting my full-time position as a stand-up comedian. My mother only saw me perform one time. It was in July of 2005 at an open mic at Comedy Caravan. This was my second time ever on stage. I was unpolished to say the least. My ex-wife and her new husband were in the audience as well, which was great because I had prepared some ex-wife jokes for the evening. Mine and Cheryl's relationship had begun to repair, and we were on better terms, but her recent marriage and decision to move two hours away to Lexington, Kentucky had caused some strain. That move meant that I was only getting to see my kids every other weekend. When I had moved into the trailer on my own, I had the children every day. Cheryl had them from the time school let out until I got off work. I picked them up, and they would sleep at my house, and I would get them off to school the next morning. We then alternated weekends. When I moved in with Jennifer, that schedule changed, but I had them for the entire summer. I really felt that the change to every other weekend sucked, but I had also been the first to change the arrangements, so I really could not be mad at Cheryl. On December 9, 2005, I got my biggest break in comedy to date. I was performing at a sold-out show at a new venue in downtown Louisville called The Gate. A promoter had seen me a few months earlier in a comedy contest at Rascal's Comedy Club in Louisville and asked me to be a part of this event that included music and comedy. Saying that I was extremely pumped on the day of this event was an understatement. There were going to be some people in the audience that could definitely put my comedy career on the fast track. 
Jennifer and I got into the car and started our 45-minute commute to the club. Almost as soon as we got into the car, I got a call from my sister. Something was wrong with my mom. She had been rushed to the hospital with a possible stroke. Hospital visits for my mother were regular occurrences. They happened so often that many times I would not even bother to visit her because I knew she would be out in a day or two. I was convinced that most of her hospital visits were brought on by mental reasons rather than actual physical reasons. In her mind, she really had ailments that warranted a visit to the emergency room. But most of the time, the doctors could not find anything wrong with her. With that being said, normally when I got one of these calls, I was unconcerned. I knew that she would be fine. This time was different. I was anxious and I had this sickening feeling in the pit of my stomach. Despite this show being a huge break for me, I knew that I needed to get to the hospital. My father convinced me to continue heading to the show and then come to the hospital afterwards. He said that my mother was conscious and there was nothing that I could do besides just sit there and wait with the rest of them. His opinion was that she was going to be fine. My gut told me something else. I personally did not feel that she was going to be all right. I'm the one who always assumed everything was all right, but why did I not feel that way this time? We arrived at the venue, and I immediately tracked down the promoter and explained the situation. In show business, unless you are a star, and even sometimes if you are, you do not mean shit to the promoter. You are paid to do your job, and you're expected to do it regardless of the circumstances. I asked the promoter if I could take the stage earlier so that I could get to the hospital and see my mother. He quickly reminded me that I had been billed as the headliner, so I was scheduled to close the show, and that's the way that it was going to stay. The show started at 7.30 p.m., and I was scheduled to perform at 9.30. Every 30 minutes, I was on the phone with a member of my family getting an update on my mom. The updates were encouraging, as she was showing signs of improvement. As the show continued, it was clear that the event was going to run much longer than anticipated. There was no possible way that I would be starting at 9.30 p.m. I made a final call at 10.15 to my father. He said that the doctors no longer thought that my mother had had a stroke. They were not sure exactly what had happened, but she was alert now. As a matter of fact, the doctors told my family that everything was looking good and suggested that they go home and get some sleep. This made me feel much more comfortable and it seemed to be another one of those usual hospital visits for my mother. I took the stage at 10.45 and absolutely killed it, producing the best set that I had ever performed. Jennifer and I left the club around midnight and made our way home. We finally made it to bed around 1.30 a.m. This had been an exhausting day. By the time my head hit the pillow, my concerns over my mother had been replaced by euphoria about my future in comedy. I believed I could really make a career out of doing stand-up comedy. At 7.30 a.m. the next morning, a call from my father snapped me back into the real world. My mother had taken a turn for the worse and I needed to get to the hospital now. I was an hour away from the hospital. We got dressed and we made the trip in record time. As we drove, I wondered what had happened overnight that made her condition change so quickly. When I arrived at the hospital, my father and my uncle told me that the doctors had told them that there was nothing more that they could do for my mother. I wanted to scream. What the fuck? Eight hours ago, the doctors had sent the family home because everything was fine. Now there was nothing they could do. We still did not have the diagnosis 
as to what had brought her to the hospital in the first place. Something just wasn't right, and I knew it. I had known it the night before. When my sister made the initial call, I just felt in my spirit that something was wrong. Within 90 minutes of walking through the hospital doors, I was sitting on the bed with my sisters, holding her hand as my mother took her last breath. The feeling is indescribable when the nurses turn off the machines and you know that a loved one will soon be gone. The once complete family will now be broken. My poor father sat at the end of the other bed in the room with his back to my mother because he could not watch as she took her last breath. They had been together since they were teenagers. She was the only woman that he had ever loved. And now she was gone at the age of 54. My parents were not perfect, and they did not have the easiest life. Our family was not like the Huxtables on The Cosby Show. We were the Connors from Roseanne. We did not have money or a big fancy house. We did not take vacations, and we survived off sarcasm most of the time. My dad worked his ass off, and even though we did not always see eye to eye, we loved each other. Nothing was ever going to be the same again. Chapter 14. Dealing with Guilt The title of this chapter not only is referencing the guilt that I felt around my mother's death, but there were other issues with guilt that I needed to confront. I want to start with the guilt that I have in relation to my mother. Our relationship for 15 years before she passed were tough, and I will never be able to forgive myself for how I handled those years. We had become opposites, but the one thing that we shared drove a wedge between us, and that was our stubbornness. We both had to be right all the time. When we would discuss something, she would tell me when I was wrong, and if she said something that was not accurate, I would have to correct her. I could never just let it go. I have no idea why I let it eat at me so bad, but I did. All I had left now were memories, and I could have lived with that if they were good memories. There were lots of great memories, but the ones that my brain focused on were all the times that I did not answer the phone when I saw it was my mom calling, or the many times I rushed her off the phone when I did answer most of the time with some fake excuse. When a good memory would manage to break through, I would be reminded of the times that I visited the house and did not even make my way back to where she was to say hello. When I analyzed these moments, I realized that these were my issues. I had issues with her. She had none with me. To come to this conclusion took many years. The guilt over this aided me for six months after her death. I replayed over and over all the things that I wished I had done. Things that could have been simple if I had just learned to let go. I blamed my mother for things that were not my business to hold against her. I watched my father work his fingers to the bone. He worked from sun up until sundown almost every day doing every type of physical labor possible and usually outside in the elements. He was a jack-of-all-trades and was able to complete every facet of building a house, from framing it to pouring the concrete to the foundation, the electrical, the plumbing, and the roof. My father had a bad back that resulted in multiple surgeries, and it was hard for me to watch him work so hard 
while my mother made excuses, usually medical, for why she could not work. I held this against my mother, whether it was my place or not. I've tried to justify these feelings over the years. This was something that I never discussed with anyone in my family. I think the main reason for that is because I knew what my dad would say, and his opinion is all that really mattered. He would have said that he was perfectly fine with working all that time for his family and it never bothered him that she did not work very often. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this would be his answer. If I had realized that years ago, what a difference that would have made. I never expected to lose my mother when she was only 54. As I sit here writing this book, I think about the fact that I'm 52. She was still young. The guilt weighed down on me daily, and I could not handle that. Every time I stepped on stage, I felt guilty because it was a reminder that I was on stage when I should have been with her at the hospital. When I went to the house, I would sit in her bedroom. This was the bedroom that was my bedroom when I lived at the house. This was the room that I would not enter whenever I visited. It pained me to realize that I could never get those moments back. In the past, when I had an issue, she always seemed to know it and was there for me. But now, she could not be there. Or so I thought. The events of Saturday, June 10th, 2006 would change my entire outlook on life and the afterlife. That day, I had a comedy show at a redneck hole-in-the-wall bar called Red Eyes. A comedy promoter by the name of Chuck Porter was producing this show and he invited me to perform. Chuck and I were regularly performing these days. I had arrived at the club approximately two hours before I was supposed to be there, mainly because Jennifer and I had gotten into an argument. Our relationship had taken a sudden turn about two weeks after my mother passed away. That day was Christmas Day, and I had proposed to Jennifer. She was so excited. I remember how she was glowing as she called her parents to tell them. I also remember wondering if I really loved her or if I was just grateful to have her helping me through this ordeal. By March, I had decided to do comedy part-time and start working a day job. I went back to work for my old boss, Bill Milby at Rentway. This was now the third time I had worked for Bill and the fourth time that I had been in the rent-to-own business. Old habits die hard. At this point, I had grown tired of making the 45-minute commute to Louisville for work and for comedy. The nights when I was performing an open mic proved difficult because there was no time to go home in between work and the show. Those days I left home at 7 a.m., I did not get to bed until midnight. I brought up the possibility to Jennifer of us getting the home in Louisville, and she made it abundantly clear that she would not move back to Louisville. This was a major issue in our relationship, and on this day that I was performing at Red Eyes, we had fought yet again about moving. The conversation ended with her deciding not to come to the show with me. So, here I was at the show two hours early, hanging out in the bar area. Red Eyes sat on a corner with gravel parking lot, and it had two rooms. The room with the bar was slightly smaller than the second room that was used primarily for karaoke. The room area had six long tables and would seat approximately 60 people. I was standing in the bar area, going over my hastily scribbled routine on a legal pad, when this couple walked through the front door. There were two older gentlemen seated at the bar, me and now this couple in the bar area. 
The couple were stereotypical bikers. They appeared to be in their late 40s or early 50s. He was tall, about six foot tall, wearing blue jeans, black t-shirt, black leather jacket covered in patches, and black cowboy boots. He had a thick, dark brown beard with dark brown hair peeking out of his American flag-themed bandana. She was about five foot five, had long brown hair that was braided into a ponytail. She was wearing a white tank top, blue jeans, and black boots. She was also wearing an American flag bandana. They saw my notes and the man asked if I was studying for a test. I laughed and told him that this was my act and I inquired if they would be staying for the comedy show. They had no idea that there was going to be a comedy show. They said that they were planning on hitting a few bars and catching a band a little bit later. Once they found out I was a comedian, they both started telling me jokes. This was something that happened to me quite often. When people find out that you're a comedian, they want to try out their material on you. The small talk with the couple tapered off, and I went into the other room to start preparing for the show and quietly focus on my routine. The other room was lower than the room with the bar. You had to walk down two steps, and then there was no door, just an opening to walk through. I took a seat in the corner that was farthest away from the entryway. Approximately ten minutes later, the biker couple walked in and they sat down at a different table. They had told me their names, but I forgot them almost immediately, so I can only refer to them as the biker couple. I had bad short-term memory. I used to joke with the kids that if they got lost at the theme park, they were screwed because I wouldn't remember how they were dressed. So I saw the couple sitting there at the other table. I felt obligated to talk to them even though I really needed to be going over my notes before people started filtering in for the comedy show. I felt obligated to go talk to them, so I sat at their table and we started visiting again. The male biker nonchalantly said to me, Your mom wants you to know that everything's okay. I had never met these people before this evening. They had no clue who I was and they definitely did not know that my mother was no longer with us. Initially, I thought perhaps he was joking, and it was a joke that I just didn't get, so I let out an awkward laugh. The female biker then put her hand on top of my hand, grasped it firmly, as she looked me directly in the eyes and sternly said, No, your mom wants you to know that everything is okay. Chills ran down my spine. She then said, She knows that you have a lot of guilt about the way things ended, and that you two are good. I literally broke down, almost instantly. I then opened up and I told them about my guilt and our relationship. They went on to tell me that she knew that I was holding her hand when she passed away. She had also told them that she felt that I should be performing at bigger and better places than the place that I was at this night. I must be completely honest, the rest of the night is a blur. The couple left a few minutes later and I never saw them again. I do not remember anything about my performance. All I could think about was what had just happened to me. The feeling of guilt immediately left me. I had a feeling of peace that I had never experienced in my life. As much as I thought I believed in some sort of life after death, I now knew for a fact that we go on after we are done in this world. My mother had sent two total strangers to me. I had no idea why it was these two or if they even realized they were being used for this purpose. All I knew was that this night, six months to the day after her death, she found a way to communicate with me. And it would not be the last time. 
She had another surprise coming for me in just a few months. Life felt so much different after that night. To have the knowledge, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we do go on in some way after we leave this carbon-based earthly body was exhilarating. I likened that knowledge to playing a video game where you know that you have multiple lives, so if you die, you get to continue playing. I have absolutely no fear of death anymore. My concerns with death are more about those that I would leave behind, primarily the financial issues. Throughout my life, I've had these quote-unquote gut feelings, and more have come true than have not. Feelings like I had when my mother went to the hospital the night before she died. Some might chalk that up to the bond we had with each other. Maybe so, but I seem to have some ability when it comes to such things. I knew when my great-grandfather Troy died. I did not have a vision or hear from him, I just knew. Four months later, my great-grandmother passed away, and I told my mom I felt funny. This was just a few hours before we got the call to rush to her house. Usually my abilities are relegated to knowing what song will come on the radio or making the exact statement that someone will make on TV or the radio. Just yesterday, I was in the car talking to my wife, Tracy. I pointed to a place for no apparent reason and said, that used to be a steak and shake. As soon as the words left my mouth, the host on the radio said steak and shake. And this was not an advertisement. He just mentioned it in conversation. This is not the most common thing to say on the radio, and there was no reason for me to point out that building and acknowledge its former existence. On another occasion, Tracy and I were listening to a country radio station that just played songs from the 1950s and the 1960s. I randomly asked her if she'd ever heard the song Running Bear. She looked at me as if I were making the song up. Not only had she never heard the song before, she was convinced I was messing with her. I sang some of the lyrics to her, running bear, love little white dove, with a love as big as the sky. Sorry, I'm not a singer. The next song that the station played was running bear. This happens enough to freak Tracy out. Another area of guilt that I needed to deal with involved one of the reasons that Jennifer and I were drifting apart. I had started talking to Gina again. This spelled doom for our relationship. Gina and I had always stayed in touch because we had a connection. I needed her in my life in one way, shape, or form. Sometimes we would go a few months without talking, but inevitably, one of us would seek the other's advice. We used each other like safety blankets. We had the utmost respect and trust in each other. Unfortunately, she was also my biggest addiction. I told Gina that I had proposed to Jennifer, and I could tell that she was bothered by this information. She wished me well and expressed her happiness, but it was half-hearted, and I could tell. That was all I needed to convince myself that Gina and I would finally let this relationship blossom. Her knowing that I was going to get married might be the wake-up call to drive her into my arms. Clearly, I had it bad for this woman. After I broke up with Joyce and devoted myself to Cheryl, I was never unfaithful with a woman to whom I had had a serious relationship. My renewed hope of reuniting with Gina had me thinking about thoughts that were not fair to Jennifer. Jennifer was a sweetheart and she loved me. She truly 
loved me. Her only real fault was that she was not Gina. Nobody was ever going to compete with Gina. After a few weeks of deep conversations with Gina and surveying the situation, I decided to tell Jennifer that I was moving back to Louisville. She was not entirely shocked about the move since we had fought about it so much, but she was devastated nonetheless. Breaking her heart was tough, but if I had a chance to start a relationship with Gina, I was not going to put myself in another Joyce-slash-Cheryl situation. Did I feel guilty? Absolutely. But I had to seize my opportunity. I mean, this was Gina. Before I broke up with Jennifer, I'd mentioned to my sister Becky that I wanted to move back to Louisville. She had been going through a divorce and had just bought a house a few months earlier. She and her husband had decided to reconcile. She would be moving back into her old house with him, which would free up the house that she had just purchased. The timing was perfect for me, and I jumped at the opportunity to rent this house from her. I told Jennifer that we could still see each other on occasion, but I no longer wanted to get married. This really was more for her benefit than mine. I didn't really mean those words, but I figured if it would make the transition easier, she would eventually tell me to eat shit once she thought about it later. How much was I in love with Gina? Within a month of me thinking there was a chance we could get back together, I had broken off an engagement with a woman that I had just spent 18 months with, with no real regards to her feelings, and changed my living arrangements. That was the true epitome of my addiction, and Gina was my drug of choice. I'd been chasing this dream for almost six years. Now this dream of this perfect life with a perfect woman was in my reach and I sure as hell was going to give it everything that I had. In July 2006, I moved into my new place. I immediately started talking to Gina almost constantly. Things were moving fast. She told me that she felt guilty about me breaking off the engagement with Jennifer because she knew how much it must have hurt her. Within two days of moving in, I invited Gina over. That night was great, and we instantly connected. We laughed and had so much fun. I was happier than I had been in years. Later that evening after Gina had made it home, she sent an email that put me in ecstasy. I will not share all of its contents, but it said that she was totally in love with me. She had regretted all the time that we had missed and she wanted to make up for that time. In the last few weeks, she had told her brother, sister, and her mother on separate occasions that she was in love with me. I could hardly believe what I was reading. Gina had never been this open about her feelings in the past. My great evening had suddenly become the best night ever. The following morning, I informed Jennifer that I felt it would be better if we no longer saw each other. She was not happy with that decision, but she accepted my wishes. She was a smart woman. She knew that when I moved out that it was really over no matter what I had said. I hated making that call, but I was 100% free to now make my dream life a reality. Chapter 15. Do not wake me from this dream. Over the next month, my relationship with Gina flourished. I was in heaven. This was everything that I had hoped for and even more. I literally had everything that I wanted. 
Most mornings, I felt as though I should pinch myself just to make sure I was not dreaming. This was five years after my suicide attempt, and I was genuinely happy. At least on the surface. There were still moments when I felt depressed, and I could not understand why. This made absolutely no sense to me. I would be driving to Gina's house with a big smile on my face, and then just start crying because of some song that came on the radio. How could depression still be an issue when I felt happy? I had stopped seeing a therapist when Gina and I started dating. My assumption had been that Gina was the cure for my depression, so I no longer needed a therapist. That was just not true. I learned a hard truth during this period of my life. Depression was here to stay. Obviously, I'm speculating about that being the case for the rest of my life. Depression affects everybody differently, and it's not necessarily tied to whether someone's happy or sad. Sometimes there's a chemical imbalance in the body. Sometimes there's another reason. What depression was for me was unpredictable. I needed to find a way to deal with that, and I did not want medication to be the answer. My goal was to find ways to lessen the number of bouts that I had with depression, and at the same time, try to find a way to stop the progression of the onslaught when depression did take hold. Contrary to my prior belief, I needed to make an appointment with my therapist. In the meantime, I was making the most of my situation. Gina and I had so much in common that we never ran out of things to talk about. We were so in tune that we almost always knew what the other was thinking. When it came to the paranormal, she was like a spirit magnet. She attracted paranormal activity more than anyone I had ever met. That's why they loved her at the Louisville Ghost Hunters. She was almost a guarantee for a night of full evidence when she was part of the investigation. One night at her house, we had just finished watching some late-night TV. We had turned off the lights and was lying on the sofa in her living room. There was a splash of dim yellow light flowing through the windows from the street light in front of her house. Silence surrounded us. We were just enjoying the peaceful mood when we heard the familiar sound of a coin dropping to the hardwood floor. The coin made a ting sound as it hit the floor, and this was followed by a quicker ting sound, and then the sound of a coin wobbling rapidly until it came to rest on the floor. The sound was undeniable, and we both looked at each other in shock. But before we could say anything, another coin hit the floor, and then another. We jumped up from our resting position and flipped on the lights. There, in the middle of the floor, in front of the entertainment center, were three quarters. There was no way that these coins could have fallen off of the entertainment center. They were at least five feet away from the piece of furniture, and they had sounded as though they were dropped from a much higher distance, possibly even the ceiling. This was one of the craziest experiences that I'd personally encountered. That event, though, would be topped, within a week. August 22, 2006. It was my birthday. There was nothing special planned for the day. I was bummed because I would not be able to spend it with Gina since she had a previous engagement. My birthday happened to fall on my day off from work. With no major plans, I was just lounging around the house. My buddy Josh called around 4 p.m. to ask if he could borrow one of my software CDs. He was at a Meyer department store around the corner from my home and was on a tight schedule. Therefore, I agreed to drive it up there and meet him in the parking lot. While I was waiting by the entrance of the store, my phone rang. It was work. 
there was an issue that they needed my help with. I was on the phone in the middle of a hot mess when Josh approached me. He could see that I was on an intense phone call, so he gave me a nod, a smile, and took the CD without engaging in conversation. I continued the call as I got in my car and started driving. After about 15 minutes of driving, I had rectified the situation. I hung up the phone, shifted the car into park, and glanced up only to realize that I was sitting in my dad's driveway. The phone call had been so intense that I not only did not remember any part of the drive, but I drove to my dad's house instead of my own. At this point, it was close to 5 p.m., and I had one of those quote-unquote gut feelings. I seriously thought something was wrong with my father, and I started to tremble. I called Gina to tell her not only about my unexplainable trip here, but also about this feeling that I just could not shake. All she said was, I know, I'm on my way. This was another example of our strong connection. She was physically in her car and less than five minutes away. How did she know that there was a problem? There was no plan for me to be at my dad's house. Gina lived 20 minutes away from my dad's house, yet she was only five minutes away when I called her. How did she know 20 minutes before to start heading in that direction? Gina arrived and we went into my dad's house. There were introductions, and then Gina and I sat down on the sofa next to each other, straight across from my dad, who was sitting in his recliner with his miniature poodle in his lap. He seemed completely fine. We talked for about 30 minutes, and once I was convinced that there were no issues with my father, we got up to leave. I never mentioned to him about how I ended up at this place unintentionally, or about the strange feeling that was in the pit of my stomach. Instead, I just said that I stopped by because I wanted to see him on my birthday. Gina and I spoke for a few seconds in the driveway before she had to leave out for her previously scheduled engagement. I was thoroughly confused, and she did not have the time to explain why she felt that she needed to come, but she promised to call me as soon as she was finished with her appointment. I went home and I awaited her phone call anxiously. Making sense of the last few hours was impossible. Anxiety was not usually an issue for me, but I could not sit still that night. Finally, my phone lit up, and it was Gina. I fumbled the phone in a hurried attempt to answer. I said hello and started babbling. Gina told me to calm down. She reminded me that we had plenty of time to talk. She promised to explain as much as she could, but pressed that she did not have all the answers. I took a few deep breaths. I was ready. Before I could even ask the most urgent question to me, and that was why I went over to my father's house when he was not ill. Gina had already started to answer. She said, you weren't there for your dad. You were there for you. I told her that I did not understand. She went on to remind me of something that had completely slipped my mind. This birthday was my first birthday after my mom had passed. Gina asked if my mom had a certain ritual for my birthday. I answered that she did. My mother called me every year on my birthday at 5 p.m. I was never sure what was special about that time. I did not think that I had been born at 5 p.m. She did this without fail, though. Every birthday at 5 p.m., my mom would call. Then Gina asked, What time did you pull into the driveway of your father's house? She already knew the answer. It was 5 p.m. Gina told me that this was my mother's way of contacting me. She had brought me here to wish me a happy birthday. I felt like my body had just melted.
Every muscle in my body was totally relaxed as I digested this information. I smiled and I told Gina, I really wish that you could have met my mom. She replied, I think I did tonight. She went on to tell me that my mom was hanging around my father the whole time that they were there. She then asked if I noticed how many times the dog kept looking up towards the air, which I had. That was the dogs acknowledging my mother's presence. Gina said that that was the dog noticing my mother's presence. And that was my most memorable birthday of my life. Sadly, I think that may have been the last contact I've ever had with my mother. <laughs>